for the longest time. I had no idea what I was doing. And I think that keeps a lot of people from trying. They don't know what they're doing, so they never try. And then they're too afraid to iterate because change is hard and they don't want to respond to feedback. So they hide from the feedback. Even, you know, even PhDs do this, even academics do it. But really, you have to act before you're ready, change, throw a lot against the wall, and then eventually the right thing will pick you. And here we are, another week, another episode. Here we are, academics mean business. Academics meaning business. Super fun. So, yes, this is your host, Dr. Lindsay Padilla. Today, I have Dr. Isaiah Hankel. You may know him as the cheeky scientist. He has a membership site that helps PhDs, particularly STEM field PhDs, get into a career, basically hit the job market. And he's been doing this a long time. So let me just say, this episode is a treat because I actually get coached on it a little bit. And what I love about it is I can just like hear and sense and feel how much learning he has done and how much he's really stepped into becoming a marketer, a marketer solving a problem and helping and serving a group of people that need help. And this is STEM field PhDs who you know, might be trying to get a job, but no, you know, need other options. And so I've been a fan of him for a long time. He came highly recommended to me actually when I first started this podcast by one of my mentors, Stu McLaren. Stu McLaren is my go-to guy when it comes to membership sites, but he's also a brilliant marketer. And he, I remember when I started this podcast, he was like, oh, you have to meet Isaiah. And it's funny because that was probably a year ago. And here I am. finally getting around to interviewing him. Um, No, he's been on my list for a while. And you're going to get a lot out of this. Go into this episode with a pen and a paper because he dropped some, you know, really amazing one-liners that are is great advice for basically running a business. And so because he's been doing this a while, we do talk about some of the mistakes he's made, um, the choices he's had to make along the way, how he, you know, reframes what those mistakes, quote unquote, are, or those failures, he would say. And as a true scientist, the numbers don't lie. So he has a lot of real talk in this conversation. So I'm not going to even just like fluff him up anymore because he doesn't need it. You guys are going to love this episode. Please uh, tweet him if you can um, over at Cheeky Scientist. And of course, if you want to talk more about the episode and what he chats about, let's uh, show up together and hang out in the Facebook group, the Academics Mean Business Community. All right, here we are, Dr. Isaiah Hankel. All right, I am super excited to welcome Dr. Isaiah Hankel today, coming in from Washington. So excited to have you, and I've been waiting for this. Uh, I love your Twitter account. And you also, I believe, and I don't know if we mentioned this, I believe you have connected with a mentor of mine, Stu McLaren, like maybe back in the day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I still actually, I talked to Stu last time about two months ago. And oh, he's, nice. Yeah, he's a fantastic guy all around, does a lot of great work for, I think his foundation is amazing. But yeah, in terms of marketing and online tribes, he is the man to go to for sure. He is. Yeah, he, I remember, so I was in his mastermind pretty much all of last year. And um, I had just started this podcast about a year ago. And he goes, you need to meet Isaiah. Like, And he has this amazing community. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so um, you've been on my radar for a while, but I know it took me a little bit of time to reach out. So I'm really excited uh, to chat with you about everything, the business you've built, the decisions you've made. Uh, I think we have a lot to learn from you. And I'm just also curious about you know, what was going through your mind as you were 
as you're serving PhDs um, out in the career market, which I think is, um, yeah, definitely aligns with what I do as well. Yeah, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it, uh, Lindsay, and I'm happy to be here. I love the podcast. A lot of our PhDs listen to it. And oh, good. so it's, it's an honor. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. So let's go back to grad school. Let's go back to no, your thanks. life as, his, as, a, as an academic. Tell us uh, what that looked like. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's always a period of, uh, it's, it's the romantic period for everybody in grad school when you first start. And, you know, you're, you have unlimited possibilities in front of you. Mm. I think a lot of people who go to get their PhD, no matter what the background is, you are hardworking, you want to have an impact on the world. And there's a, a very kind of a selfless part of it where mm. you just, you want to make something big happen that's going to change things for the better. And so that's what I was like. And, and like a lot of, PhDs, you come out of undergrad at the top of your class, right? Or whenever you, whatever you go on to next in academia, you, you know, you would have to have at least some sort of positive experience in undergrad or university or college or whatever you'd call it to go to that level. So you, you, you have a sense of confidence too. And, and then you get into the, the system and, you know, that first year you meet everybody that's new, uh, it's, you know, you're at that part of the learning curve where it's fun, you're making big gains, mm. uh, things are hard and they're new. And then, you know, I think around year two, you really start to, starts to shift a little bit and you change, you start to feel the weight of grad school and the weight mm. of the academic culture. And for me, you know, around year two, year three is when 2008 happened. Mm. So, you know, the economic crisis happened, all of a sudden it went from you know, like our entering class had the most people ever funding yep. was at one of its highest ever in 2006, 2007. And immediately things turned on a dime. Labs were closing down left and right. The already kind of brooding, negative, critical academic culture became one of pretty intense uh, doom and gloom. And, mm. you know, there were spending freezes, people, you know, entire institutes getting shut down, uh, hundreds of postdocs, grad students, et cetera, being let go almost without notice. And, you know, the la latter half of my career was very different from the beginning. Mm. Yeah. So I'm guessing that, you know, because I, I also was a grad student at that time, but um, in master's work, I hadn't actually started mm. um, any of the advanced work that I did later. But I remember that too. And I remember that feeling of, wait, what's my job going to be? And like, is it going to be okay? And then I also remember a lot of friends looking up grad work, grad programs, mm. like trying to get in them because they didn't know what they were going to do either. Yes. They had debt from their undergrad. They weren't getting their jobs. And it was such an interesting time to like be looking for employment and making, you know, those moves at that, um, you know, stage of our career. Yeah, I agree. And that was a very uh, ironic thing for me too. I remember that exactly. Mm. Somehow when you have these recessions, more people go into school yep. <laughs> because there's less jobs. And I'm like, yep. what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Because the funding was low. And I think that's kind of traditionally the yin and yang that, that yep. has happened. But this time it didn't turn around. All yep. these people went into school and you know, things in academia didn't rebound. Funding nope. did not rebound. And nope. we're at a very different state now than we've ever been before where the entire system is buckling in, in a variety of ways. So what are some of the decisions that you made? So it sounds like that obviously had a big impact on, wait, is this stable? Because lots of people I've interviewed, I feel like some of their venture into entrepreneurship or starting a business had to do with going, oh, wait, this one thing that I thought was like a guarantee is not as stable um, as I thought. So what were you um, 
imagining and what kind of steps were you taking when you were like kind of, yeah, witnessing this happening around you? Yeah, good question. I mean, what you realize is that nothing is 100% secure, or even close. <laughs> Things you often think are the most secure are the least secure. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, especially as high level academics or PhDs, we go into graduate school because we think, you know, what it used to be is you would go on to eventually be a tenured professor where you couldn't be fired. And if you paid yep. your dues, you worked really hard, you achieved something that was hard, you would be rewarded. That mm-hmm. path's not there anymore. And coming to that realization of, wait a second, how can the most secure job in the world be disappearing or be this Ooh. shaky mm-hmm. or be so miserable? And mm. so it was, a, it was a real awakening for me. And you know the shift that, that I had, and I, I'm sure you had and many other PhDs had is like, wait a second, if I can handle the stressors and the uncertainty of graduate school, even the uncertainty, even to go deeper of discovery in general, sure. I can certainly handle the, the stresses of working in business or entrepreneurship or uh, you know taking on innovation in a different sector. Awesome. So what made you finish and then and what did you decide to do with your PhD upon leaving? You know, one of the most difficult things about academia when you get to the higher levels is that there's no clear cut plan, there's no milestones. Mm. It's very subjective, which is hard mm. for a lot mm-hmm. of uh, academics to wrap their head around because we think okay, it's very empirical in academia, especially a PhD and, and you know, especially in STEM. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're kind of at the whims of five people on your thesis committee and really yep. I was at the complete whims, uh, or un- I guess uh, controlled by the whim of my PI, uh, my advisor, so pr- principal investigator. Mm. And my, my department was a little bit archaic in that the chair of the thesis committee was also your academic advisor, your PI. They don't do this now for obvious reasons because the PI is kind of biased to wanting to keep you there after yeah. they train you. They don't want you to graduate. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a very common scenario played out where I was ready to graduate. My PI did not want me to graduate. And a lot of these very little games, reminds me of a quote, in academia, everything's a big deal because the uh, stakes are so small. Um, (laughs) And so you had all these very little petty games happening, Mm -hmm. positioning for papers, positioning for whatever, and it turned into just a really negative experience, one that a lot of people have have shared in academia. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, academia is suffering because of it. And the people in academia are suffering. But the mm. good news to that, which you've alluded to, is that it means you know, pain drives action. And when you're in moderate pain, you don't really do anything different. But if you go under enough pain, you will make a change uh, to your life or to your career, or you'll start a business. And you know, that's kind of where the pain led for me. Yeah. So what so you started going, okay, like what made you make the decision like I want to start a business? You keep alluding to this this mm. idea that like it just like popped into your head. Was there somebody you were following that you looked up to? Was it social media that had an impact on you? Like where did you go? Oh, this is an option. I, I think whenever you see a need and whenever you experience mm. enough pain yourself, those things come together to say, wait, I can do something about this because I don't ever want anybody else to experience this pain mm. uh, again. And there was a big part of that. And I noticed in, it was all around me. Like it's just one day you wake up and be like, wait a, wait a second. All of the postdocs in my lab, the lab next door, all of the graduate students, they are miserable in the exact same way. None of them know how to get a job outside of academia. All of them think they have to do a postdoc or that, and you know, and all of them have all of the smartest, some of the smartest people and the most driven people, strategic, have had to deal with all kinds of uncertainty and, mm-hmm. and had to show persistence, tenacity, all this different stuff. And these people somehow think that they're not valuable. They somehow, mm-hmm. when it comes to 
their own career, they can't sink their way out of a paper bag. Something wasn't adding up. And so that really was the, the awakening and that, you know, that there was a need here that could be filled and I could prevent people from feeling uh, that same pain. And I could, I guess there was a sense of like possible justice too. Like there mm, had to mm-hmm. have been a reason that I went through all of this mm. and this was the reason. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. And I, and I think so many bu- businesses are built on exactly what you're talking about, where our previous experiences and, and suffering in, in so many ways, you see a mm. pattern and then you're like, I can help people. So it sounds like that was all aligning for you. What was some of the first um, moves that you made? Um, did you get training? Did you get a coach? Did you just put an offer out there and, and start to make money? What did, what did those early stages of business look like for you? You know, I read a lot. So mm. typical PhD, you know, right. started reading stuff and, and some of it was, you know, at first it was very kind of academic oriented things that I read. And then I started reading more stuff that was more in business pop culture, mm. whether it was mm-hmm. the four hour work week or it was the hundred dollar startup, you know, just trying to see like, how could I with no money and mm. uh, no idea how to like pitch anything, how could I make this business start just with me on a shoestring? Yep. And it was very freeing in a sense because I had felt so dependent on my PI and other people for my progress that just having something of my own that I could completely mm. control the progress of was uh, exciting and mm-hmm. it filled me with life. And so I started it. And then a lot of it was just being able to adapt quickly to feedback. And I think this mm. is what holds people back. So when I started this program, it was actually to help all academics become entrepreneurs, which is funny oh, that I'm on here with you. Yeah, because I started it and what I realized very, very quickly was I needed to think carefully about my niche. Yep. For me, it, it made me be like, oh, this is what I do. I am a PhD. I'm just going to help specifically PhDs. Mm-hmm. And then it was like tweak and iterate and people really responded to it. And then I was like, wait a second. Okay, PhDs do not want to be entrepreneurs right away, especially in 2008. They're dealing sure. with enough risk. Um, what do they want? And they wanted to learn how to get into jobs. The same thing mm-hmm. that I wanted and that I already did. And so it was just through a lot of iterating and tweaking, pouring so much of yourself into something without any guarantee that it was ever Mm. going to pay off against everything that everybody around you says and slowly working towards that vision while tweaking and iterating along the way. Yep. That is business right there. There's your book. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think that's hard for a lot of people because we want certainty. Like if I'm going to invest in this, Mm -hmm. if I'm going to write... I wrote a blog. I started with one blog and I wrote articles that were like 10,000 words. Cause again, I was like getting out of academia, like <laughs> literally 10,000 words. Yeah. And I would write these things for two years. And there, I was probably 50 people reading them a week, honestly. And, and mm. maybe 10 of those people were like family members and <laughs> for the longest time. And I just, I had no idea what I was doing. And I think that keeps people, a lot of people from trying, they don't know what they're doing. So they never try. And mm. then they, they're too afraid to iterate because you know change is hard and they don't want to respond to feedback so they hide from the feedback even mm-hmm. you know even PhDs do this yep. even academics do it but really you have to act before you're ready change throw a lot against the wall and then eventually the right thing will pick you mm. I feel like you're full of pull quotes this is <laughs> this is going to yeah. be all like <laughs> I'm going to have to really uh, <laughs> filter here no I love that and I feel like you're distilling so much of what even this whole entire podcast has been I'm having mm. this moment of like, oh yeah, like you've been doing this work for a long time. And maybe it took me, you know, I, um, yeah, I, I guess I started business like three years ago, but it was totally by accident. Like it was, I was not looking for it. I was not actually looking to leave the academy. I like mm. fell into it. And so mm. to see you mention something 10 years prior 
to recognize that PhDs weren't ready to become entrepreneurs because it was so risky. And now I feel like, oh my gosh, they're they're like, it feels to me like they're flooding the market. Of course, I'm in a bubble and I, mm. you know, whatever. But like part of me is just like, oh, wake up to like how amazing this this opportunity is. We're in a very different like economic climate. Mm. You know, the way capitalism works, it's, you know, we're going to go through a recession again. Will it be as yes. bad as the other one? Probably not. But there's still this idea of exactly what you're bringing up. And I just resonate with this so much, too. I literally chose academia because it was so stable. So mm. for me to walk away was a big like it was almost like you just like a little kid, like uh, like, yeah, like um, even you could even argue like a little bit like, oh, I didn't even know this was possible, like the cave analogy, right? Like it's like what there's shadows aren't on the wall, like there's this whole other thing. And I could use that in so many ways. But like. It's funny because part of me is thinking about what you've witnessed over 10 years in business as well. Like, and, and I think getting into that might be kind of an interesting conversation because I also had Chris Humphreys on mm. and he is similar to you, same era and time frame where it's aligning with social media, right? That's like when Twitter came out was like 2000, right? Like 2008, like Obama was the Twitter president, like you know, all these things yeah. were lining up where we could now talk to other academics and be mm. like, oh, here's this guy who says I don't have to do this. Now, mm. all of a sudden, there's comfort in the numbers and not that solo. So you built a community. Is that like the first thing you did pretty much is like really work on connecting PhDs with other PhDs as you help them in the early stages of business? I think it was waking them up at first waking and them up. Yeah, for being, sure. it, being willing to say things that other people wouldn't say. Mm. And you really mm -hmm. have to walk a line between just being too disruptive, that you're just being disruptive mm. or controversial for the mm -hmm. sake of controversy and, and doing it in a way that educates. And back when Cheeky Scientist started, you know, we were the first people that were really talking about this data and sharing it online and saying, like, you will not be a professor. It is mm. statistically <laughs> almost impossible. Numbers. Yeah. Here's the trends. It's plummeting. Yep. Professorships, yep. you know, are going to be extinct in, I mean, for today, probably about 10, 15 years, if you look at the full-time professorship time, yep. uh, trends. So, you know, saying that first and, and realizing who your market is too, like PhDs, they don't want a lot of positive fluff, right? Mm -mm. It has to be backed by numbers and mm -hmm. every market's different. You have to know how to speak to your audience too, no matter who they are. And that's why, you know, it helps to have gone through what they're going through. Yep. And so talking yep. about the problem, first waking people up to the problem and then mm -hmm. showing a solution because nothing's worse than somebody just talking about a problem all the time who has no idea, no ideas how to solve the problem, mm -hmm. won't present solutions, wants to keep you in the problem, wants to just talk about what was me. So yep. talk about the problem and hit the problem hard. Most people are afraid to do this. They get mm. their first person saying, you know, you're wrong for X, Y, Z reasons, or the first person who says, you know, the first troll who really comes out <laughs> against you online or the first collection of trolls. And eventually over time, you just, it doesn't phase you, but you can't get to the point of that not phasing you uh, if you don't start saying what's true. And mm. if what you're saying isn't causing some controversy, isn't drawing a line in the sand, isn't making people pick sides then you're not saying anything worthwhile. Mm, mm -hmm. And you're not going to find your people, right? Exactly. I, there's obviously a bunch of PhDs who probably are like, why would you ever go into the job market? 
but mm. it doesn't matter. They don't need to listen to what you have to say if they don't want to, right? Especially in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. And the lessons are the same in academia. If you want to get a grant published or a paper, whatever mm. else, you better polarize in some way. You better so be talking true. about a, a paradigm shift. You better, mm. you better be controversial in the right way. And so you have to polarize. And if you're yep. just saying this same, you know, rose colored glasses, you know, foo-foo kind of kumbaya stuff that everybody's saying and whatever that is for the current day and age, mm -hmm. it's not going to resonate. You're not going to mm. find an audience. You're not going to help people. Awesome. So your audience building, like over the years, like what have you kind of noticed about and like, how have you shifted your business to like match what the audience needed? I, I also like highlighting that. And especially with your time in this, like in this in internet marketing, I guess, and like this whole space, like how have you shifted your business to kind of adapt to exact like what the problem is or what people need help with, or as you discovered more about like where your income streams were, if you could maybe paint that a little bit. I know that's a big question, but no, it's a good question. And you know, you have to be willing to change no matter mm. how hard it is or how much it goes against what you thought you were going to be. And for mm. me, in one sense, you know, I was like, I was all about just writing books and being a New York Times bestselling author and speaking mm -hmm. as much as possible. And that's great. You can do mm -hmm. that. But sequence matters too. And I see a lot mm. of people who have podcasts or entrepreneurs, whatever, they're really good at taking high quality pictures of themselves and putting them online <laughs> and getting people to follow them. But they're really bad at business. And mm. business comes down to systems. You want to scale a business, you better systemize. And what helped me the most without realizing at the time is that as a STEM PhD, all we would do day in and day out is run through protocols in a lab. Yeah. And a protocol or a methodology is just a system. And you tweak and mm -hmm. refine it and get the system to work so that you never had to do it again. So you can scale up to the next level. And then that system will take care of itself, whether it's through automation or outsourcing. And it's, it's very automating or outsourcing or having a software program do something uh, is very, very different than creating an entire orchestrated system that involves 15 uh, smaller systems to actually get something mm. big done. And, mm -hmm. you know, learning how to resource effectively, these kind of things, that has, has been what's allowed this business to scale, where most mm -hmm. people are just, again, you know, front facing and talking, writing blogs, yeah. and not doing anything on the business back end, any of that tough, less uh, gratifying work to mm. scale. scale. Oof, it's the tough stuff. I tell you. Yeah, it's so true. And I love that you're bringing this up because it's also I think it's one of those things. And I, this I'll I'm speaking from my own experience. Um, it's one of those things where it's a cart before the horse. It can feel like that. But I, you brought up just that last line that you said of like, but it's not the sexy stuff. It's not what people want to be doing. And so a lot of effort doesn't go towards it. And we tend what I found me being in business three years, we're now finally feeling like the systematizing is aligning with what I want, like how I want to show up and what I want to do, like do for business. And, and so for me, a little bit was finding that, like finding my purpose and then having the systems to back it. So you, you know, you almost like you can't create the system before you know your market and like what you're selling, of course. But then sometimes it's like, uh, I want to do it now because I'm working too hard. So there's kind of that constant struggle. But I do think it's like an inner management thing that has to happen that I wasn't 
um, allowing myself to commit to the systems or I, as a, a non-STEM <laughs> uh, PhD, it's like, I, I actually found like I wasn't good at systems. I would tell myself the story that I'm not good at it. And mm. so I tended to avoid it or I would try to hire for it. And then that in of itself is its its own thing. Like I'd never hired anyone before, like <laughs> as right as an academic, it's like, that's not the kind of stuff I studied. So I kept finding me, myself in the space of, I don't know where to go or what to do. And so there is this, I don't know, back and forth between that. So yes, I a thousand percent agree because I think once you automate, then it actually opens you up to show up in the way that you want to show up in your business, which it took me a little time to find that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, don't lie to yourself too. Um, mm -hmm. Like sometimes you think you, sometimes you're just doing stuff because of your ego. You want to be out yeah, there. You want to be front totally. facing. You want to do this yep. stuff. Yep. Really, you need to learn the numbers. Do you even know how to look at a profit and loss statement? You're trying to run a mm -hmm. business and you can't even do like basic account payables and account receivables. Mm -hmm. Don't lie to yourself and you need to learn. And, yep. uh, and you need to be able to do everything first. Quit yep. trying to hire yep. and outsource the stuff you don't like because if you don't know how to do it, you can't track it. You can't manage it. Hire um, the right person. Business, yeah, you can't so hire the right much, person yeah. for it. Your business will fail. You have to do it first. Learn how to do it 100% and then train somebody else to do it. Set up mm. KPIs and ways to track it so that yep. you can scale on to the next thing. Yep. I love that. And it's, it's such good business advice from the perspective of like, and it is true. We lie to ourselves. And I think that's the other thing too. It's like, it's not that I'm not good at it. And I think we're bringing up this idea of academics actually have a really good ability to self-assess and do research and weigh options and, and distill and, and lots of things that are um, a skill that is needed to learn content that we don't understand to uh, grow, I guess, in that in that way. So maybe trusting that that's possible. And I think even just hearing you reflect that back too, I jumped on the bandwagon of, oh, just hire it out. I don't need to be doing stuff I don't want to be doing. And I think I was tapping too much into the freedom lifestyle that I was mm. getting from being an entrepreneur and less in uh, tapping into my own strengths of like, I know how to do this, even if it's hard. And it's maybe not something that I'm like, you know, zone of genius at. I'm not doing it for other people. But it doesn't mean I'm not capable. Mm, exactly. And mm. You know, uh, a really good, another really good book that I recommend is The E-Myth Revisited. Yes. And it talks about how, you know, entrepreneurship is, doesn't really exist in terms of long term. It's not somebody who's just a great entrepreneur that's going on and, and building these businesses. Basically, you suffer from, as he says in the book, uh, from an entrepreneurial seizure, which is that moment <laughs> where you're like, okay, this needs to change. I need to do something. I'm tired of working for this person. I'm going to go out on my yep. own. And then the rest of that time, you're not in entrepreneur mode anymore. You are mm. first you're in the, in your technician self is it was what he calls it. And you're the person that has to, you know, write the blog articles. You're the person that has to provide this service, et cetera, mm -hmm. but you can't stay there forever. Eventually you have mm -hmm. to scale up and you have to start being a manager. You have to start systematizing. Uh, it's just very different than I think what yep. is kind of sold to entrepreneurs today, where it's like you get to live this, you know, free lifestyle mm. and write blogs or whatever. And somehow you're going to make a million dollars writing a blog without, you know, applying key business concepts that have been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, it's just impossible. And yeah. your brain will find a way to lie to yourself. You'll be like, yep. oh, I'm making some money here or I'm doing this mm -hmm. or this potential. No, facts are facts. And that's why you have to learn how to, you know, read a forecast or read a, a profit and loss statement so that you know, wait, this is not bringing in any money. This is costing me <laughs> this amount per year. I am failing. This is a hobby. 
right? And so only by identifying the problem again, can you start to identify solutions. Mm, so good. What are some of the mistakes that you've made over the years that you feel like you've learned the most from? I don't even know a lot of all the mistakes, but like, no, yeah, I don't, or maybe mistakes. do you have like a top, like the biggest one, something you wish you knew or I can, yeah, I can go, go through a whole string of them. I mean, the, one of the first <laughs> things, my first business I did, I, I read a book that was an older book on how to start a business. And it talked about doing magazine ads, oh, totally funny. outdated. So I did a magazine ad for this first product, obviously didn't do anything because nobody reads magazines anymore. So, you know, <laughs> using outdated processes um, mm. is a big thing. This still f- affects a lot of the world's biggest businesses. They don't know how to market using today's technologies or today's social media platforms. So that was a big thing. Also thinking that I didn't have any good ideas or that I couldn't do things myself or maybe being too arrogant to think mm. that I should do it myself and and being maybe even lazy. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people suffer from this. We're like, okay, this is me. It's this all is like, about like what I would say was mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about it's all about my network. My network is my net worth. I just need to get mm. around the right people. I need to sign up for the right courses. Mm. And then I'll have these ideas and I can pull other pe- people in to help me with it. No. In the beginning, you will have to do everything yourself and build value 100% on your own before anybody else will ever be able to even add anything to what you're doing, or you'll be mm. able to add anything to anybody else. You have to build something like on this podcast in the beginning, you had yep. no value to offer to anybody. Now, mm-hmm. as your podcast grows, you actually have something of more and more value to mm. add to people because yep. what are you giving to them? It's always add value first. You're giving them mm. right exposure to your audience. Yep. You have to build something of value first and nobody's going to help you do that. And that's something mm. that, that I suffered from a lot. And then the, the last one that I'll bring up is, you know, going back to lying to yourself. I was great at that in terms of, I really wanted to, uh, I built up a personal brand. I had some things take off early with my book, et cetera. And I really wanted to build up courses around my personal brand for mm. more mm. vague kind of leadership topics. <laughs> and then I had cheeky scientists take off, which was very specific, you know, helping PhDs get mm-hmm. jobs had a couple technical courses, expert cytometry takeoff that was about a, a certain type of technology and training people to do this just took off for, you know, at first it was like two times the revenue of the personal brand stuff, then four, then five, and then like a hundred. And finally I was like, you know, because I learned how to read a, a spreadsheet and a forecast and a PL <laughs> statement, like why am I spending X amount of time, 50% of my time mm. on something that's bringing in 1% of the revenue, right? Yeah. So look at the data. The data doesn't yeah. lie. You will lie to yourself. People will lie to you. The numbers don't lie. Mm. What made you... So I, what you're bringing up also reminds me too of like iterate, iterate, like keep trying mm. things. Like that's also something I'm hearing in this that I also... It's, you know, what you wake up and maybe leave, you know, the academia for or what you, you know, go out and be like, I'm starting this business and I'm, you know, making my LLC or whatever first choices you make. Mm. It's you look back and it's like, oh, that like that is not what ended up happening. Mm. And I think there's something about taking those first steps that is so important in a business. So you start with a personal brand. It's what you know. You're like, oh, I could talk about my research or I could talk about this. And then, you know, I could write a book. I could speak. Great. And then there's this like tiny little and I think it's like this very specific niche that can take off because it's so specific Versus this generic, oh, I can teach people leadership or I can teach people this thing. And I think we almost have to start in the generic teaching thing to then learn, oh, I, you know, this is, and I feel like this is where I'm at in my business right now. It's like, oh, this is what all of me looks like, or this is what these intersections of identities or these intersections of experiences that I've had 
It's like, that's actually a market, right? And then doing research on that market or having conversations with them or figuring out what they actually need. That's how you build those like niche markets. So I'm wondering if when you started Cheeky Scientists, if there were any signs where you're like, oh, this is going to be big. And like, what got you to, I don't know, to see it, obviously the numbers, like you just mentioned, but is, were there any like intuitive hits of like, oh, I can feel how big this is? Yeah. Great question. So let me, well, let me back up real quick. Cause you said, sure. you said a lot there and I, I think it's important to cover <laughs> first, you know, you are going to obviously fail more than you succeed in any little yes. thing you try. And the ratio is honestly, it's about 10 to one, 10 failures <laughs> of initiatives, projects, whatever. And then one little thing will take off. It's not going to be the one thing that takes off to make you a millionaire, but it will help you move forward. So expect mm, that ratio, change your threshold. Also cover the back end. Don't jump off and just start your own business when you're unemployed. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sure there's always outliers, but in terms of best practices, get an actual job. Not ideal. You're not making yeah. any money at all. You have nothing monetized. You're, you're so far away from ever being able to pay for rent doing whatever you're passionate about. Keep a job, do it on the side, mm. right? Whether mm-hmm. people call it the side hustle, whatever else, but really, really do it. Um, so cover the back end. And then what you talked about was, you know, yes, you could try all these niche markets, all these things, but eventually you have to narrow your focus, throw a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff against the wall, see what sticks and then lean into what sticks. You go from, I heard Mm -hmm. it put this way, you go from throwing spears to holding up a shield, right? So when Mm -hmm. you're first starting out, you're going after everything and that's normal, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you don't Mm -hmm. eventually put down the spears and hold up the shield and start saying no to stuff as much as possible, you're never going to make anything big. Mm. And if you're looking for those intuitive things, I love this question because it's one I haven't thought about a lot. It really just The data scientist? Not thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) But the intuitive side. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, looking back, it was was engagement, right? Really. And and more Mm. and more excitement. Just people and and the, the speed at which they responded. So when I started putting out stuff about helping PhDs get jobs or training on certain things, whether it was resumes, et cetera, like the response rate was 50 times what it was for anything mm. else that I was doing. The engagements, the questions, the amount of trolls, the polarization, yep. like people saying, no, no, this is wrong and really coming against it was a sign that I was headed in, in the right direction. And yep. yeah, I mean, more than anything, uh, and it's not people agreeing with you. I, I, it's, it's pure just engagement, especially- mm polarized engagement because people have a negativity bias, right? It's been shown yeah, biologically that um, we, you know, negative information goes through our amygdala is stored in our long-term memory banks almost instantly. Positive information you have to, you have to hold into your uh, awareness for 12 seconds for it to go into your long-term memory. Mm-hmm. So when you have trolls and people coming against you, that's fine. That's still engagement. You want that lean into yep. that. What's making them, what is getting them to react? Because what you're working against is not negative engagement. It's apathy. Mm. Yeah. And especially in like social media where people share things that they want to look good sharing. Mm. So it that's how like, you know, virality, if you will. But like, that's what we do is we share things that make us look good. And so to be a PhD student who's basically getting affirmed, like I'm nerve, I'm scared. I don't know what my next position is, whatever. And then, oh my gosh, here's this guy who's saying I have other options or here's this community um, this outlet that's telling me that, you know, I'm not crazy for thinking what I think. So that's going to be shareable, even though a huge market of academics, a bunch of academics will disagree with it. That's perfect because the the people that 
want to share your stuff makes them look good, makes them feel good. It's also, you know, you're obviously going into internal desires when we talk about marketing, right? Like there's external reasons why we do stuff and there's internal. And and I think um, what you talk about polarize with like intention and polarize, not just for the sake of it, but for a purpose, like there's going to be some people that agree and some people that disagree. That's where movements happen, right? That's where like um, stuff gets spread. And when you're working with volume, because you do have a, like a membership site, right? That's what... Can you actually walk through some of your income streams? Because that would be really helpful. Because I think too, when you grow these tribes of people that can support each other um, from the entrepreneurial business perspective, you know, how are you supporting big volumes of people? Are you supporting also, you know, smaller amounts of people in different ways. So I'd love to hear kind of what the structure um, that you have uh, for your business too. That would be really interesting. Yeah. So uh, quite a few items there. You know, uh, the first, yeah. the first though, I think it's really important that yes, you polarize, but it's with intention. Mm-hmm. It's not just to polarize, but also when you talk about stories, like we all hear about mm-hmm. story marketing mm-hmm. and storytelling. And one big thing that we have is we have so many PhDs that come out of our programs, they get jobs and then they tell their mm-hmm. story. Yep. And these stories always start with, and the stories that I would tell, even you know, when it was just me writing the blog in the beginning, always started with the pain because pain creates mm. change. And at the mm-hmm. end of it, there's going to be a learning experience. Nobody yep. identifies with or wants to hear you talk about how great you are. No. And, and even yep. in subtle ways. Like, so if you tell nope. a story and you're kind of like, well, I had the foresight to do this, and you're like, you know, seeding in all these accomplishments that you actually had and taught, you know, mm. nobody resonates with that. People are very smart. Nope. You know, an individual yep. smart, when they're reading that, they know what you're doing. They want to yep. be in your shoes as you went through the pain and what you learned after. Mm. And not you learned it because you're so brilliant, but because you went through that pain. At the same mm. time, nobody wants to read like a woe is me story. There's so True. many of these articles about how horrible it is or like too emotionally intense. I mean, this is mm. this doesn't go anywhere. It totally derails yep. people and there's no action of, actionable insights behind it. So I think that is key. And for us... um, you know, the way that we created our first program happened because I, I forget what I read. I remember reading something, or I think I just, one thing I've read that always stuck with me is zig while everybody else is zagging. Mm. And what everybody was doing at the time is they were selling, like they were trying to create product funnels where they would sell something very cheap. Like they yeah. would sell like a $30 ebook or they would sell uh, something for, you know, like uh, 15 bucks or whatever. The market was flooded with that. And so instead we took a different approach and we said, okay, what? If we created a flagship product first and put every ounce of effort we have into mm. this one product, and the product was a program, and people, you know, courses were starting to take off back then, and we're like, mm-hmm. you know what, we're not going to do courses. Everybody's doing a course. We're going to do a program where it's lifelong mm. learning. You get access, mm. and you get access for life. Everybody was doing mm. like recurring payments by month, forever. Oh yeah, yeah. And so we said, one time you get in, you're in for life. You're a lifelong you know, learner, which obviously appealed to PhDs. Yep. You don't just get a course. You get a course. You get a, a private group. You get access mm-hmm. to any apps or tools that we have, private job boards, private webinars, ongoing training that occurs forever. And you get yep. into that for, for a one-time fee. And that's what we built all of this on. And instead of diluting this program, mm. um, we just added more and more quality to it. And, and I think it's almost tripled in price since it started. I bet. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of people have trouble going all in with something because they're like, mm. well, they think about minimum viable product in a very different way. Like they think about, yep. I got to build something first and then sell this one little thing. No, no. You get something, make something as ma- amazing as possible 
and then you keep adding to it. That's how you tweak. Mm. You don't tweak by changing the product and doing this all over. You tweak by adding more to the product or better things to the pro- product or program over and over again. And that's what we've gone for is just the highest level of quality possible with the highest level of support, which is mm. the tricky part because yes. in-person high-touch support is hard to scale. And while yeah. everybody else was doing these courses or like they would do a membership and then you'd get into the program and have to pay additional costs for every additional video. And then nobody would talk to you after you joined and it was mm-hmm. a ghost town. We said, okay, we're going to flip that on its head and make the most interactive, engaged group as possible. And we're just going to give everything. And there's no secret behind it. You can't you can outsource and automate everything except for personal relationships. And that's where we really shine. I love that. Yeah. And like, you know, it's so funny because I feel like the market's moving towards that right now mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of people being sold courses and products that literally they receive no support whatsoever. And I am finding and just being in the that's what I do is I help people with courses. The academic side of me is like, oh, yeah, because that's not how teaching works. Like mm-hmm. I can hand you a textbook like, but exactly. does that mean you're actually going to learn? What is what is learning look like? Exactly. And so but it's funny because now the market, there's so many courses, right? And so what's happening is people have to up level what the course experience looks like. Um, so you kind of were doing it in the age when people were just like, set it, forget it, make a bajillion dollars. But it doesn't matter. The, the students on their own because they agreed to buy this thing and it's up to them. And I think maybe as educators, we probably knew, oh, that's probably not the best thing. And I know Stu McLaren, too, is really big on the experience. Yeah. And, and the great thing about it is if you're willing to put in, it always just comes down to hard work and intelligence, right? Having the intelligence mm. to iterate when something's not working and to add more value in whatever way you can. And yep. so other people can create these courses, they can automate whatever, but if you're willing to do the hard work and you're, you're smart Go enough to systemize, uh, mm. you're, you're going to- Both at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to come out on top um, and mm. because you're adding value and that's what really matters. Uh, too many yes. people, again, they read however many books are out there now about how to have like a hands-free business or yep. the, the evergreen dream or the automation funnel or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it just doesn't, it's not real. It can be a component nope. of a thriving business. But mm. at the end of the day, business always has been about personal relationships and yep. being there for someone. Education's always been about that, like you said. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where do you see this going? Like, what are what are some things you're working on? Um, you know, as you see where the market is right now, having been in 10 years, you know, what, what is the vision for cheeky scientist and, and, um, you know, where, where you're taking it? What's, what's the next level for you guys? Yeah. So we, we have a variety of advanced programs that we've been working on mm. and, uh, nice. and diff- three different tracks. We have a, a career track, a leadership track, and then like a technical training track. Oh, cool. Um, we have an app that just got released. Or is it, oh, nice. And it's internal right now, but it'll be public fairly soon. And and we have um, a documentary coming out later this year, uh, which Ooh. we're pretty excited about. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of stories to be told, I think, in, in this, in exactly the kind of work that you're doing. And I think what this podcast is about is, um, you know, yeah, what uh, academics can do outside of the academy. Obviously, there's lots of options. Um and, you know, how we can make a difference in the world that maybe isn't like tied to an institution. No. And, and I like that you said stories. I mean, I heard mm. somebody say this. Stories will never go out of style. Technology is mm. going to change. Everything's going to change. But human beings learn in terms of stories. They, there's 
brain imaging studies yep. that show that if you can read a series of facts or stats and a quarter size region of your brain lights up, but you hear a story, your brain mimics the activity of the person telling the story. First of all, your entire brain, uh, you know, uh, huge regions of your brain light up at the same time mm. and you mm -hmm. instantly put yourself into that story. It's just, it's just how we are wired. And yep. it doesn't matter if you're writing an academic paper or reading a book, all of them are put into this narrative format. And mm. so your ability to understand that and to teach through that without, you know, getting lost in it in terms of business, you know, it's almost like you need to teach and tell stories from a kind of a business nonfiction point of view, but it can be very powerful. Mm. And everybody has their own mm -hmm. unique situation, their own unique story. You talked about niches and segments. Start thinking mm -hmm. about your niches and segments in terms of the stories those people tell. How different are their stories? Yep. People with different stories, that's a different segment. Yep. Oh, I like that. People with different stories is a different segment. Ooh, nice. <laughs> well, this has been a jam-packed interview. I know we're at the end of the hour. Um, I could talk to you all day and I feel like I'm like writing down notes for myself and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. This was a, <laughs> a great <laughs> interview, I guess, to kick off the year. I'll say that too. Fantastic. Yeah, Lindsay, awesome. this has been so, great. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. So where can people hear more stories and um, engage with you? Um, where are you hanging out the most online right now? I would just go to CheekyScientist.com and you can uh, hear some of our stories there. And mm -hmm. if, if you are an academic or a PhD, um, you can learn about some different career tracks there as well. Awesome. Yay. Well, we will have to have you back on because this was really fun. And I feel like there's so much you can teach all of us <laughs> as we build these businesses, Having you having been in the trenches for a long time. I really appreciate it. And that was really fun. Thank you, Lindsay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.